On today's episode, I am joined by a nutritionist and food author of multiple bestsellers, including Food Politics, Soda Politics, and her latest book, Slow Cooked. She goes into detail about the health of ultra-processed foods and veganism, compares artificial sweeteners and hard sodas, and brings into question as to who our federal food agencies really represent. You're going to want to sit down for this one, guys. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Perf- Professor Marion Nessel, and this is Uncovering the Truth. Marion, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, glad to be here. Let's just get right into it. I want to start with a statistic from the CDC, and this is from 2020. It says 41.9% of adults meet the criteria for obesity, 19.7% of children meet the criteria for obesity, and 12.7% of two to five-year-olds meet the criteria for obesity. Now, I just wanted to start this off because you've written Food Politics, Soda Politics, The Unsavory Truth, and your new book, Slow Cooked. Tell me, with all of this information out there, how is it possible that we're going backwards and becoming more unhealthy? Yeah, the statistic that I like the best that I think is most shocking is that 74% of American adults are overweight by CDC standards, 40% meet criteria for obesity, but 75% of Americans are overweight. Uh, That's a majority, a big majority, and it means that overweight has become normal in our society. Uh, This is not a an issue of education. Uh, I think everybody who would like to be a healthier weight is that, you know, is knows that they're supposed to be at a healthier weight is just really, really hard to maintain a healthy weight in the society that we live in. And the, uh, you know, the way that I explain it is that we have twice as many calories available in the food supply as the population needs on average, there are 4,000 calories available in the United States uh, to every man, woman, and little tiny baby in the country. And the population needs probably about half that amount. Food companies have to sell that. And their job is to sell more food, not less. And the way I like to explain it is that food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies, they're businesses. And their job is to sell as much product as possible in order to make profits for their stockholders. That's what businesses do. Um, So once you understand that, the food environment becomes easier to understand. So what I'm interpreting here is that this is a a byproduct of capitalism in a sense we have a free i mean not that there's anything wrong with capitalism but the free market allows food to food industry to push unhealthy foods in front of us but it doesn't matter because as long as they sell them and by the way there but there's regulations that i thought were supposed to protect us and that's where i come across your work and i'm once again blown away that even industries like or you know agencies like the FDA and the Department of Agriculture what what are they are they just missing the mark here or what's going on they're captured 
Um, I, I laughed when you said the word capitalism because I, I, I used to call it the C word. Um, whenever I gave talks about nutrition or wrote books, I never, never, never mentioned the word because it made people really uncomfortable. Now everybody's talking about it. I think the, uh, our understanding of the economic forces behind our food supply and our food system are much, much better now. I mean, people, if the COVID pandemic did any good whatsoever, it was to lay out for people how the food system worked and doesn't work and why uh, late stage capitalism is so bad for public health. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think people really, really understand it now. Um, and the agencies are captured by corporations. Um, I'm just writing a piece right now for my blog. I write a daily blog during the week, uh, foodpolitics.com, and I'm writing a piece on um, user fees for, uh, there was a big article in the New York mm. Times about drug industry user fees, where the drug industry pays the FDA to evaluate drugs. I mean, I can't even say it with a straight face. The drug industry oh. pays the FDA to evaluate whether a drug is safe and efficacious. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I'm just sort of left breathless by that because that is an inherent conflict of interest. It puts the FDA in an extremely awkward position of having to uh, get its money from the companies that are that it's evaluating. That just doesn't work. We're human. You know, we have feelings and emotions, and I, this just doesn't work. And so I'm I I was once on a FDA food advisory committee, and in my very oh. first in my very first meeting, um, this was actually the FDA science board. And at the very first meeting, they raised the subject of food industry user fees. And, and I was just appalled. I said, that, that's a conflict of interest. And they said, but NIH does it. And I said, but NIH isn't a regulatory agency, the FDA is. <laughs> And, and use, user fee, really quick, if I can interject, user fees, is that them paying the agency to yeah. approve labels? Yeah, to, appro to approve the, dr the drug or the product or the safety or any of those things. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And that's because the FDA is an enormously underfunded agency. But you look at a lot of the decisions that the agency has made over the last a few years and it's explained by the fact that it's paid for by the drug industry three quarters of its budget for drugs oh. comes from the comes from the drug industry corporate uh, interests yeah so that's that's a conflict of interest and the fda has always represented big agriculture so there's nothing new about that um and the uh, and these are agencies that are you know, I mean, I don't know, they're in bed with the companies that they're supposedly regulating. And are we talking here about the meat industry or big chicken, big beef, dairy? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Department of Agriculture represents big agriculture. You know, it does yeah. very, very little for small farmers. It does some things because it's under pressure to do that. Um, but it does very little for small farmers. And, and the agriculture department is not about food. Well, I mean, one of the really bizarre things about it is it's about, um, uh, I mean, it's not about, you know, the kind of thing that you buy in grocery stores, except right. for meat, 
except for meat and um, and chicken. The uh, you know, I mean, most of the funding for the Department of Agriculture goes to the growers of corn and soybeans, and that's feed for animals and fuel for automobiles. Hardly anything that the Department of Agriculture supports is food for people, except indirectly through meat. And if there's one thing about meat is you know, we're supposed to be eating less of it because of climate change. Yeah, but now we're seeing a giant pushback. And I guess that brings me to my next because I've, I've actually I've been a vegan, a hardcore plant based diet for the past two years. No dairy, no animal products, mm. no eggs. And uh, so so. I've been under this illusion that I've been so in such a good diet. And I think many vegans feel the same way that I can eat anything. And yet I am very concerned that there is now a quote unquote, big vegan of food products, <laughs> such as impossible beyond beef. Uh -huh. that is, corporate, corporate America has found their way into marketing themselves as healthy and vegan and putting that great, you know, V label on their food. And mm -hmm. I'm curious your take on plant-based and, and veganism and uh, is it possible we're, we're being taken for a ride as well? Well, I'm not a vegan, but I think the evidence is very clear that vegan diets when, um, when are, when done well enough and make sure they have an adequate uh, amount of vitamin B12 and an ad adequate amount of calories, they're fine and they're healthier than mm. the average American diet. There's nothing wrong with a vegan diet. If you want to eat that way, I'm not a vegan. I think it's much too much trouble. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to have to interview everybody about whether there's an animal based ingredient in what I'm eating. Um, oh. And I'm, I like ice cream too much to give it up if the truth be known. And I don't think vegan substitutes make make the grade. But, oh. the, um, you know, everything in moderation. Uh, but the new products are interesting because they fall into the category of ultra-processed. And mm. ultra-processed is a relatively new term. It's only been around for the last 10 years or so. And it, um, it refers to foods that are industrially produced, can't be made in home kitchens, don't bear any resemblance to the foods from which they were derived, um, and often have a lot of... Uh, color, flavor, and texture additives. And the new substitute meat products fall exactly into the ultra-processed category. Um, and what we know about ultra-processed foods in general is that they uh, are strongly associated with poor health if you eat a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, People who eat a lot of ultra-processed foods have are have higher body weights, have obesity-related chronic diseases, have higher mortality. Um, and there's now one extraordinarily well-done clinical trial that demonstrates that ultra-processed foods encourage people to eat more calories. Um, not a few more calories, but hundreds more calories. Mm -hmm. um, and that alone is a sufficient explanation for weight gain when people eat a lot of these foods. People who eat, who eat ultra-processed diets don't realize they're eating more calories. They're unaware that they're eating faster. They're eating larger portions. They just don't even realize it. They didn't intend to. But that's the observation from some pretty excellent science. Um, so these are ultra-processed foods. And whether they have the same effect or not, we don't really know. 
Their effects on the environment are still being debated. It depends on what assumptions you make about environmental impact. They still require a lot of energy to produce. I just don't know. I've tasted the uh, substitute meats. I think they're a pretty good substitute on taste, ground, mm -hmm. taste and texture. Um, they're not bad. And people tell me, who, people on vegan diets tell me that they are so grateful for these options. I, I, I you know, and that surprises me because yeah. I don't, I really, I really like vegetables and fruits and grains and I'm perfectly happy not to have meat. Um, I don't mm -hmm. have it as a big part of my diet, but the, um, I, I went to the plant-based show in, in New York recently, they, they had a, a, an exhibition of plant-based products. I didn't think they tasted very good for the most part. I, yeah. was dis I was disappointed and there were very few plant foods. I mean, there was one seller of um, an excellent brand of Italian tomatoes canned and nobody <laughs> was paying any attention to him at all. <laughs> You know, it was um, vegan product lunchables. I was kind of appalled. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm because I'm curious because I've found at least through my life that the healthiest foods taste the worst. And when something tastes too good, it's too good to be true. And oh, I don't feel that way at all. Oh, really? I think, no, I think healthy food is delicious. Absolutely delicious. I have no trouble with it at all. Wow. Um, I, but but really? you don't I like think, you don't like vegetables i think psychologically i i enjoy eating them because it, i know i'm being healthy but I've, i'm trying to learn to rewire my brain to say food is no longer an enjoyment process for me it is for nutrition and i'll derive my joy from being healthy and i may be in extreme oh, position no. oh but, you're breaking my heart you're I, absolutely breaking my heart. I think food is, you know, one of life's greatest pleasures. And if you don't find everything that you're eating delicious, you're missing out. But vegetarian food is delicious. It's some of the greatest cuisines in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I, that's really, oh, I feel so sorry for you. Oh, <laughs> I, it's okay. It's okay. Well, I guess that I wanted to bring this up then because it seems to me that, you know, we have all this information about let's say fast food i drive home every day there is an hour line every single day in westwood near this this restaurant called in and out it is the new fast food on the west coast hour line out the door and here i am sitting i'm like we know we've seen the documentaries supersize me supersize me too which i know you were featured in i was and in both of them you were in both <laughs> oh my gosh i didn't even know i saw supersize me about five years ago that that's incredible so well speaking of the fast food industry with everything we know about it mcdonald's is still the number one chain in america and you have places like chipotle kf uh chick-fil-a and in and out that i think have taken the place of kfc taco bell and mcdonald's they're kind of branded as this new healthier version but from where i sit are, are they any healthier or is this just corporate america found a better way of marketing well it's both i mean you can eat healthfully you can even eat healthfully at mcdonald's if you choose um you know really? what you're eating but the um you know i, I mean I've, i don't think that fast food is poison when my kids were little i used to take them to mcdonald's on their birthdays i thought that was uh, mm -hmm. just a wonderful thing to do and they loved it but it wasn't it was never meant to be everyday fare 
It's just that because of the kinds of food system that we have, this kind of food is cheaper than healthier food. You don't have to cook it. It's quick. You could just get in, you know, exactly what you're going to be getting no matter where you go. People like that. And the and these foods are formulated to be tasty. Um, and if that's the kind of food you like and that's what you've grown up on and you don't know anything else about food and don't enjoy any other kinds, um, it's okay. You can lose weight at McDonald's. That's been shown. Um, you can lose weight eating anything. And you can be healthy eating a, a reasonable amount of fast food as long as you're getting a few other things. I mean, it's not, it's not poison. Um, really? It's not the best thing for you. Yeah, not, not the best thing for you. So, but is it, aside from weight gain though, is there another component to health that perhaps gets overlooked? Because uh, if, if you're not gaining weight, like I could eat a blueberry pie every day for 2000 calories and I would not gain weight, but it's definitely not good to, to lack the uh, nutrients, perhaps, uh, you know, they call nutrient dense foods or nutrient empty. Um, and it's like you said, with uh, you have a quote about ultra processed foods, you said ultra processed foods are the most important nutrition concept to come along since vitamins. So mm -hmm. there's a conversation about weight that I see is the number one thing people care about calories, and that does lead to obesity. But is there more than just oh, yeah. calories that's important yeah, but weight is the big issue in american society right now three quarters of american adults are overweight that's the majority that is the not only the majority but it's a big majority that is a lot um, yeah <laughs> so so for for many people weight is an enormous issue and if you want to so there are two things there's calories and there's nutrients you need to have a complete complement of nutrients. And that's so easy to get. I mean, the dietary advice is so easy that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, that's really all there is to it. <laughs> and, you can, and you can put together fabulous, delicious, wonderful meals that meet those three standards mm -hmm. where food is defined as something that's not ultra processed. I mean, that's make the ultra processed definition makes it easier to talk about food now because you just exclude that category of junk food and everything else um, is fine. So, and if you eat according to those principles where you're, you have a lot of plant foods in your diet, you're getting the fiber and vitamins that are in plant foods and you mix those with anything else that you're eating, you're fine. You're going to get the nutrients you need. Americans are not nutrient deprived. They have too many calories, they're eating too much. That's the main problem. I mean, obviously for individuals, it's going to vary. Right. But on <laughs> average, the big problem is calories and how you keep calories down mm -hmm. and how you keep those calories uh, in foods that are going to provide you with some nutritional value. I mean, that's why the whole business with the sugar-sweetened beverages is such a big one because they don't have any nutrients at all and they're just calories. Wow. Um, and you, it's like drinking candy. And the first thing you do if you want to lose weight is you stop drinking sugar-sweetened beverages. That's oh. that's the first thing you do. Stop <laughs> right <Yeah>. now. <laughs> so speak of those sweetened beverages, uh, there's this, I think this, this era or this phenomenon is sort of washed over, but I have someone important in my life who is addicted to diet Snapple. 
And I want to ask you as a, I've seen you've done a lot of work in your blog, Food Politics on Artificial Sweeteners. Mm-hmm. Is this any better for you than regular Snapple? Or in fact, is it even worse? And is it very highly addictive because you feel that it's healthy because there's no sugar and low calories, but it's not. And by the way, Snapple company themselves are first to tell you that this is everything that everybody loved about Snapple, but without the bad stuff. And it's, mm-hmm. what do you say about that? Yeah, it's hard to know. I don't like, I, I have kind of food rules that I follow. And one of them is never to eat anything artificial. So artificial sweeteners are off my radar. Um, they're just not something that I eat and I don't like the taste of them. Um, mm. uh, they have for me a lingering strange chemical aftertaste that I just don't like. Um, for many people, they're helpful in, you know, if you really feel like you got to have one of those sugar sweetened beverage things, this at least stops those calories. There's not a whole lot of evidence on the population level that artificial sweeteners help people maintain a healthy weight. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for that. There are individuals for whom it's very helpful. Uh, there certainly are people like your friend who feel that they're addicted to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if they are have symptoms of addiction, they need to deal with that the same way you deal with any other kind of addiction. Um, I don't know how bad they are. Um, an awful lot of people consume artificial sweeteners, and there's not a whole lot of evidence that, um, you know, I mean, people don't drop dead on the spot if they okay. have a diet soda. You know, there's evidence that comes out that associates it with risk of heart disease, with risk of this disease and that disease. It's hard to distinguish. Most people who are, are consuming artificial sweeteners are doing it because they're trying to lose weight. They've got other kinds of dietary habits that might not be so healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to parse it out. But as I said, I don't recommend them. I, okay. I, think, I think the jury is still out and, and I don't like the way they taste. And yeah. for me, taste is very, very important because food is one of life's greatest pleasures and you should you get to enjoy it several <laughs> times a day. You shouldn't eat anything you don't like. I need joy. I need more joy. You need joy in Man. your food. You certainly do. And I want to live I, long. If I have I, one piece of advice for you, it's get the joy back into the into your diet. That's that's good advice. Yes, joy. The mental health is important for longevity as well as as the diet. Um, and so, but when you said there, you said it's very hard to disseminate between you. You said you know there's so many studies out there about diet snapple. There's so many studies mm-hmm. about red meat, about chicken, about the plant-based diet, about pretty much any food and vitamin supplement. So what, what should we be looking out for when we do our own research? Because we do do our own research in the 21st century online. And I know you've mentioned a lot that a lot of these studies are funded by the food companies themselves to tell you, hey, look at the data. Our food does not cause cancer. But what should we be looking out for when we read these articles? And is there any examples perhaps of some food companies that were were funding studies that you found just appalling? 
Oh, absolutely. I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah, My book, Unsavory really Truth, is about food industry funding of nutrition research. And I picked the most egregious examples I could find. You know, I mean, the classic one is Coca-Cola, which for years funded yeah. studies to demonstrate that Coca-Cola had no effect on body weight, that anybody who said it did was so doing such terrible research, he could ignore it, that sugars have nothing to do with health and so forth. Um, they're not doing that as much as anymore, which is a good thing. But, uh, you know, lots and I mean, I've just finished a review of studies funded by the egg industry. And the egg industry is very worried about concerns about cholesterol. <laughs> Dietary advice on cholesterol is very hard to understand. Yes. It says, it says you should, uh, you know, you can eat as many eggs as you want, but you should keep your cholesterol as low as possible. <laughs> I don't know how you could put those same things in the same sentence, but but they do. Uh, so, and then wow. a lot of that, a lot of that research was funded by the egg industry. You know, I think eggs are fine in reasonable amounts, but I, it's the research stuff I don't like. I, I mean, it's just very, very difficult to, to make sense of it. Um, and But I think for people who are not scientists and are not going to read how these studies are done and are not going to look through the details and are just going to look at what they read in the paper, I say use common sense. I mean, for mm -hmm. any single food, it is very difficult to believe that any single food that you eat is going to make any difference to your diet at all because you're eating an enormous variety of foods. Most people do, unless you eat a really weird diet. Yeah. Uh, most, most people eat a lot of different kinds of foods. The diets vary enormously from day to day. Um, and it's hard to believe that one, one food is going to make any difference whatsoever. It's the whole diet. It's everything that you're eating that's going to matter and the number of calories that you're taking in. Um, so when I see studies of single foods, especially the ones that are advertising Funny. themselves as superfoods, um, I just super. laugh. You know, is like, that a, I, I think they're funny. <laughs> wait, is that is superfood? Is that a wait? Is that a, not a real term? It's a marketing term. It, encour it encourages oh, people no. to buy that food. And every fruit and vegetable argues that it's a superfood because it's got antioxidants, it's got this nutrient, it's got fiber, it's got something else that you need. You know, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables is really good for you. I mean, that, that we know that. We know mm -hmm. that. Remember, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's really all there is to it. It's not any more complicated than that. The rest of it is marketing marketing, big marketing, and especially um, one of the, the the issues today is social media marketing. There is absolutely, at least to my knowledge, no regulations. Like I, either you are marketed with alcohol, with fast food, and it's predominantly fast food because I know you've said, um, I think in your book, Feed Your Pet Right, you talked about, <laughs> s talked about slotting fees at the supermarket which I'd equate to the same thing as online ads. Is this right? Essentially, whoever has the most money can get in front of the most people through both mm -hmm. in the supermarket advertising and online advertising. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and, you know, you, and you pay influencers. So yeah. lots of influencers make their money by taking ads uh, and accepting fee. You know, I have a blog in which I don't host guest posts and I don't take ads. I get two or three requests a week 
for ads on my blog. From Maybe the food, in, from like from the food anybody, industry? From anybody. anybody. I mean, usually public relations people who are selling some, you know, who have clients that they're trying to place. Um, but I can't believe the number of requests I get. Mm -hmm. I could be very wealthy. Well, that's so, so that, okay. That's another point though. Being a good person, it seems there's not a, I mean, there's not a, it always seems like in corporate, there's not a lot of money in being a good person or doing the right thing because, and, it, and this ties into the food because well, on the flip side, the healthy foods seem to cost more money and the cheap foods that taste much better are planted right in front of you. And they're much cheaper and much more convenient. So is this health you know, crisis that we're in partially to do with, with the money. And, and it's also requires a lot more work and time to be a healthy person. Well, yeah. I mean, we have policies that make the cost of fast food and junk food very low. And there's been very good evidence that the cost of all foods has gone up in case you haven't noticed. Oh, yes. And the, uh, uh, but the cost of healthier foods has gone up much more than the cost of the unhealthy ones because those can be bought when the ingredients are at low cost. They can sit on shelves for long periods of time. And if you want to eat really healthfully, you have to know how to cook and not everybody does. Not everybody has the time to cook. Not everybody has the equipment. Um, not everybody has the desire to cook. It's just so easy to pick up um, you know, something that somebody else has cooked. And the... Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the world that we live in. And, and marketers have um, made a big point about how cooking is a chore yeah. rather, rather than a pleasure. Um, although I know a lot of people who think that cooking is really fun. Mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, if, you, if you're one of those, then you're way ahead of the game because you can control what's in your food much better if you're doing it yourself. But not everybody has the education, the leisure, or the money to do that. And that's a big problem. And that's why government policy is so important, because what you want is policies that will make healthy choices easier. You want the healthy choice to be the easy choice and the most delicious choice. Um, right. You know, I mean, so for people like for people like you or you who don't care about the enjoyment, you're not a foodie. <laughs> I, I was a foodie, but I was just the I after learning and watching all these documentaries, including you know your work in the Super Size Me and the documentary Fed Up, which I also watched before. I, it's become impossible. It seems just in my mind very hard to. It seems like I have to give up all of these foods that are taste so good and they're so cheap and so easy if I want to be supremely healthy and really tap into the human body yeah, and our full like, potential. You know, I don't feel that way at all. I think there's a place in healthy diets for junk food, just not too much. You know, it's just that, um, you know, I've had years of practice and the, uh, and yeah. I prefer, I prefer the taste of fresh, healthy foods. I just, that's just my preference. And it's interesting, it's been my preference all my life since I was a kid and discovered what vegetables picked off the vine taste like. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a real revelation. I it was a summer camp revelation. I talk about this in my forthcoming memoir. Um, you know, it was a summer camp revelation where I was sent out to pick green beans in the garden uh -huh. for dinner one night. And I couldn't believe the way they tasted. I had been raised on canned beans, which mm. I thought were horrible. 
And yeah. this thing was absolutely delicious. It was warmed by the sun. It was sweet. Um, it was crispy. You know, it was just mm -hmm. wonderful. I thought, wow. Yeah, it, like, it seems like... It seems like we're, uh, as a society, you know, we're losing touch with nature here, and that incorporates our food as well. I know you talk about you have a garden, right, where you cook your two gardens, two gardens, one upstate and one on my terrace in Manhattan. That's inc that's <laughs> incredible. So, but that's uh, that's what I'm saying that we've gone away from our evolutionary roots. It seems like to these canned beans and these wrapped ultra processed foods. And so, just to talk about your your new book here, slow cooked. You uh, read on the forefront that you found your passion at late in life. And yeah. I mean, and not, not, not to put an age, I don't believe in age really is a, but it's what it, it's very inspiring just as for one end, as a young man, it's, it's very hard growing up with social media to see, oh, this person has the perfect job. They have all this money. They have the perfect wife. They have the house. And there's so much pressure on us right now to decide what we want to do right now. How do we become successful immediately? But then I read your, your memoir here and not until 50, did you find your passion? So I have two questions here. First, like what kept you going and, and how did this spark inside you at around 50? And, and also, you know, what is, uh, was there a moment where you said, I need to stand up against this food industry because was there an it was there a moment where you realized I got to speak out about this? Well, there actually was a moment. Um, oh, and gosh. it was, I, I had just gotten a new job at NYU as a professor. And I went to a meeting at the National Cancer Institute of um, physicians and scientists who are anti-smoking advocates. Um, they were working as hard as they could to try to get people to stop smoking. And they showed photographs, uh, slides of cigarette advertising to adults um, all over the world. I mean, there were pictures of cigarette advertisements in the far reaches of the Himalayas and the mm. African jungles. I mean, any place in the world that these people had ever been to, there was cigarette advertising. And then there was one person who showed slides of cigarette advertising to children. And it was, again, oh. one slide after another of Joe Camel and other kinds of cartoon characters who were clearly aimed at young men, uh, boys right. and young men. And it wasn't that I didn't know that cigarettes cigarette companies advertised. I had seen plenty of cigarette advertisements. And I certainly knew that the cigarette companies were trying to advertise to children, but I'd never paid any attention to it. It was just kind of there. There were these ads everywhere in magazines, every magazine you read, they were, there was billboards, they were in train stations, you know, they were on subways, they were everywhere. You just never paid any attention to them. They were just kind of there, uh, working away at you subliminally. Right. And somehow seeing all of this put together in this systematic way, one after another after another, mm -hmm. making it so clear that this was a deliberate effort of the cigarette companies. Mm -hmm. I walked out of that meeting saying, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. We nutritionists who are so concerned about unhealthy diets oh, wow. should be paying attention to the advertising of, of unhealthy foods. And so I started paying attention after that. That was in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And it took me a about 10 years before 
um, I produced Food Politics and it came out in 2002. But I started paying attention. I started looking at the ways, just deliberately looking at the ways that food industry, that food companies were marketing their products. And once you start looking, you can't not look. I mean, you really see it. And I started writing articles about it, um, different kinds of, I started writing articles about the food industry's influence on the USDA's pyramid. I started writing articles about um, marketing to children and some of the other kinds of things that I thought they were doing. And then when the time, when I realized that NYU valued books and it was time for me to write a book, I thought I would just put those articles together. Yeah. Uh, and that was the base. That was the basis of food politics, which came out in two thousand two. Wow! So here we are today, two thousand twenty-two, and and I've cited this the statistics. Things are getting worse for for humans, at least holistically, on the, from a obesity perspective, which leads, like you said, to heart disease, type two diabetes, and I guess what I'm. I want to just, I'm, I'm just more concerned with, because let's, you just watch a, a baseball game or the basketball channel or football, the, all of their advertising is Carl's Jr., Jack in the Box, McDonald's, mm-hmm. Chipotle. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's like, you want to speak out about these things, but they just simply have too much money. And I know I'd like to believe that the government and they're going to step in with regulations, but they always get undone when one party takes over and the other party. T- so we have to educate ourselves in this society, right? Or we're going to eat each other or eat ourselves to death. It seems like we can't rely on anyone other than ourselves to be just uberly smart consumers. Yeah, I wish I believed that education was sufficient, but most of the research shows that education is very, very important, but it's not sufficient. You can be as educated as you like, but if you can't do what needs to be done, or you have many, many barriers to doing it, or all of your friends and family Mm -hmm. are doing something else, um, and you're fighting society on your own, it's very, very hard to do that. So what you really want is you really want policies that are going to make it easier to eat more healthfully that would be really nice Um, you know we have a white house conference on food uh, nutrition and health coming up pretty soon everybody is hoping that something will happen at that conference that will announce some policies that will make it easier to eat more healthfully that's what i think we need yeah i agree more more emphasis on on this and more i guess more more regulations strict regulations although i know there are there are those who are opposed to the quote-unquote nanny state but Mm -hmm. we humans are too susceptible to these advertisements and we cave into our uh the corporate interests and their advertising tactics against us we need to be protected from these things i don't think we have it in us as a whole to to do it on our own yeah, I mean, nobody, none of us likes to think that we're susceptible to advertising. No. <laughs> but I'm susceptible to advertising. Yeah. I mean, when I go through, when I go through a supermarket and see, you know, some big health claim on a product, um, if I don't stop and look at the ingredient list and the nutrition facts, you know, I'll I'll fall for it too. Um, and when you're shopping for food in a hurry, you just want to get out of there. You don't want to think too much. And so these, these ads and these techniques, these marketing techniques are set up so that people won't think too much about them. The object of the game right. is to have 
as, as was once explained to me, that the objective of advertising is if it's done well, it slips below the radar of critical thinking so that you're not thinking mm -hmm. to it, you're just reacting to it without realizing. Um, and to fight that requires consciousness and nobody wants to bother when you're in a hurry or you've got kids with you in a supermarket. You don't wanna have to stop and make a research project out of it. No. Um, the uh, so they take advantage of that, and the and that's why I keep coming back to the basics. If you're eating relatively unprocessed foods in reasonable amounts, and are including plant foods in your diet, you're doing just fine. Relax, enjoy it. That's it's just it's so simple, but then we get clouded with a lot of research and a lot of all all the other studies, and so I get I. Marion, I want. I wish I could keep talking. I just have a couple more things that have been very on my mind, and it, because it's happening right now amongst young people, there's this new era of hard soda, which I know you wrote about on, <laughs> on February on February third. You wrote about this on your great blog, Food Politics. Um, White Claw has become the most popular drink. Mm -hmm ever and Bud Light seltzers, but because it's branded as low carb, low sugar, low calories. And I have a strong sensation that it's too good to be true. Once again, like I've said before, because I've drink, I, I drink it and it, it, I'm like, I don't even taste the alcohol, but then you get significantly right. under the influence. And I, I also don't like, it feels very chemically influenced and mm -hmm. I I've stopped drinking alcohol for, for like a, a long time now, but is this the new, is this any better than normal alcohol is what I guess I'd like to ask about white claws and these hard sodas. Oh, and it's got less, you know, it's in the beer category. There's a reason why these things are stocked with the beers in supermarkets because they have about the same amount of alcohol, um, except it's hard liquor, not you know, not beer. So it's vodka or it's whatever oh. they put into it. So it's vodka or gin or something. Um, yeah, you don't even taste them. They, you don't taste the alcohol or the flavor is very subtle. Uh, it's certainly better than drinking hard liquor. Um, it's got fewer calories. Um, you know, if you like the way they taste, they're fine. I've had some wine coolers that <laughs> um, I think are fine. I'm not sure they're worth the money that you pay for them in a restaurant, but the uh, or the money even that you pay for them in a store. I mean, one of the big changes in um, the in product offering since I wrote my book What to Eat in 15, 15 years ago, and I'm doing a new edition of that book, which is why Great. I'm in supermarkets all the time now. Is one one of the big changes is a shift from full sugar. Uh, drinks to low sugar drinks, flavored beverage, flavored waters, flavored. Um, you know, a million different kinds of flavored waters. And the, and then the hard, even the hard sodas don't have many calories or much in the way of, they have a little sugar, but they don't have much. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, I, I mean, it's better. Uh, whether it's worth the money is another uh, question because these things are so expensive. I'm kind of stunned by how much people are willing to pay for drinks when water coming out of a tap is practically free. Uh, right. I'm shocked that it's better because I thought it was just, uh, they were substituting in sh um, sugar and whatnot for just chemicals and artificial sweeteners. 
and well some do some don't you have to read the labels right i mean they, they vary enormously i mean there are some that are just water with a little alcohol thrown in and some kind of flavor they all have something called natural flavors natural whether, flavors. Those, whether those are natural or not we can argue about yeah. um, and I, think, and I think there is an argument to be made, but the, um, you know, they're flavored water and, you know, either the water is sparkling or the water is flat or the, yeah. or, but it seems to me that less alcohol is better than more and less sugar is better than more. So in that sense, they're better. And for people who have money and are willing to spend the money for these things, they're better choices than full sugar drinks and full alcohol drinks. Mm -hmm. And so I get, and um, one, one, one more thing here that, that I think is interesting is even aside from human beings, I just very fascinated that she wrote about pets and, oh. and what, and because it, it actually very disturbed me because I had never even thought about, oh my goodness, is there a quote unquote, big kibble? <laughs> no. and I'm is there a, is there a corporations that are feeding our dogs and cats? things that they should not be eating and it's causing them diseases to die early? Um, it's very hard to know. I mean, I wrote books about pet food, two books about pet food. Uh, yeah. One about, one is called Feed Your Pet Right, which is just a terrible title because it's really an analysis of the pet food industry. Um, and the other one is uh, Pet Food Politics, the Chihuahua in the Coal Mine, which, is a, <laughs> That's great. Which, was a, which was my investigative report of an enormous recall of pet food that occurred in 2006. Um, and it was really a mystery to find out what caused it and how it came about and what had happened. It was, I thought it was an incredible story and I had fun writing it. Mm. Uh, but the, the pet food industry is pretty diverse. There are a lot of companies that make pet food because there's a lot of waste products from the human food supply and everybody is looking for a way to use waste and not throw just throw it out and right. pet food is a really good place to use the waste products from human food production the parts of foods that humans won't eat and pets don't care about <laughs> they don't uh, care at all you know I, I, how healthy they are is arguable the pet food industry has created products that provide complete nutrition for pets. And in that sense, it's like infant formula. And it has all the strengths and weaknesses of infant formula, which is that it meets the needs of pets and they're testing to show that it does. On the other hand, if something goes wrong, it goes wrong big time because it's the only thing the pets are eating. Um, what I would like to see is research comparing homemade diets for dogs and cats versus commercial, the cheapest commercial diet for dogs and cats. And nobody has done that study. That research does not exist. Um, no, pet, no pet food company wants to do comparative research because what if the cheaper one turned out to be just as good? Um, right. And so that leaves it up to pet owners to try to figure all that out for themselves. But pets certainly do fine on commercial pet food. They do. Yeah. Some do, or let me put it another way. Some do, some don't. Some do, some don't. And I'd say it's the same for humans. Some, some do well, can eat fast food their whole lives and diet sodas, and some can't. So right. there's exactly. also some weird sort of genetic component. Well, mm -hmm. Marion, I've learned quite a lot 
I'm very grateful for all of your work and for especially your free blog that you put out every day, Food Politics. It's nice to have a voice that isn't compromised or, or purchased or bought out by the food industries. And I better not see any funding under your website for, for McDonald's. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just promoting my book right now. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes, we need to get slow cooked comes out October. So that'll be another fantastic read and probably another eye-opening experience for us consumers. So Marion, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the book and thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about uncovering the truth by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, I will continue to uncover the truth. The Uncovering the Truth theme song was created and produced by Pokari.